Hello, and welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kate Cronin. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series at the University of Texas at Austin. It's co-sponsored by the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries. This series allows students to meet and hear from industry professionals who share their experiences and their perspectives on the rapidly changing media landscape. Thanks to RTF, CME, and our guest speakers, this podcast can now make those interviews widely accessible. Today's guest is Mr. Bob Iger, the once and future CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Mr. Iger spoke to UT students on September 9th, 2022. The conversation focused on his career path, ethical leadership, and the evolving media industries. Hi, everyone. I'm Elisa Perrin, and I'm from the RTF department and director of the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries. And I am thrilled to be able to welcome retired chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, Mr. Robert Iger. Welcome. Thank you very much. So we have a lot of material to cover today, but before we do, uh, I just want to say some thank yous. Uh, first off, I want to thank my colleague in RTF, Cindy McCreary, for her assistance in the speaker series, uh, as well as RTF department, and my colleagues in the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries, in particular, our program manager, Leslie Willard, and Alex Remington, and our great grad student team. And I would love to thank, as well, so many people from the Moody College of Communication, including Allison Dawson, Virginia Anderson, Kathleen Mabley, Casey Holt, and Keith Berner and his tech team. And finally, thank you to Dean J. Bernhardt for the College of Communication. Really appreciate all of your support for our series and center and everything you do. Thank you. So now let's get started. Um, so we have uh, many of you, I'm sure, are very well familiar with the profile of our guest, who I'm thrilled to be able to host. Today, we're going to focus on a few different components. Uh, first, his career trajectory uh, in the industry, uh, some of his roles and responsibilities during his time as chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, and his current views on the state of the media industry. And then we'll end up with some time for Q&A from all of you as well. So having said that, let's dig in. Um, okay, so I want to just start off by asking you, um, I know you went to Ithaca College, and um, what were your initial career goals, uh, and how did those evolve as you were starting out? Well, I, I certainly never envisioned that I would one day become chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, so I, I didn't go to school studying, learning how to do that. Yeah. Um, in the late 60s, I'm, I've been around a long time, um, the evening news uh, on, the net, on the traditional networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, was a, a real beacon uh, for America in terms of knowing what was going on in the world and what was going on in the world that day. Uh, so in other words, it was, it was popular and important and a loud voice in, um, in our country, in our world, in our culture. And there was a, an anchor person named Walter Cronkite at CBS, who was one of the most well-respected people in America, known as a true truth teller. And he, aside from a few athletes at the time, was an idol of mine. I just revered him. I lived with, I grew up in a family that was very interested in current events. And so watching the news, reading newspapers 
was something that I was I was taught was important throughout my early childhood. Uh, and I, I just revered this anchor person and wanted to be him. And so as I looked at uh, potential colleges, I was looking for a place that would teach me about radio and television. Sounds kind of quaint today in a way. Uh, and in particular, give me opportunities to work for a campus television station as a, as a news person. And so that was, believe it or not, 1969. And I, uh, I studied there. I applied myself um, with rigor. And I got a job out, uh, after college as a weatherman in a small town in upstate New York, believing that it would be a stepping stone to me becoming Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I quickly discovered that I was not nearly as good as I thought I was. Uh, I, I was able to hold my job, by the way, but I just wasn't that great. And my ambition to be that guy, which would obviously have required considerable skills, uh, was probably um, not one that ultimately would uh, would pan out for me. And so I quickly pivoted after a year of being a weatherman and a feature news reporter and got a job as a production assistant at ABC, the television network. In New York City? Or? That's how it all started, in New York. Okay. And then I tried to be, if I don't know how far you, you I could talk about the next 50 years if you want, <laughs> but I won't do that. But it was, it's interesting as I as you look back on a career that resulted in what happened to me. There are so many things that were unpredictable. There were so many elements of just great fortune and luck. So just very quickly, and it's kind of relevant to these times in some ways. <clears throat> the president of the United when I started ABC, the president of the United States, Richard Nixon, was being accused of certain crimes, and was, uh, it was there was a consideration as to whether he should be impeached. And there was so much attention in Washington on that, that ABC sent a number of people down on the production side to manage the coverage of this, and I was one of them. So I went down and worked as a production assistant on what were then the House Judiciary Committee impeachment hearings. And then Nixon resigned in August of 1974. And so I went back to New York having worked 20 hours a day, seven days a week, I don't know how many weeks. And they and ABC said, I was kind of wondering what my next assignment would be. And they said, what would you like to do? And there was a concert in Madison Square Garden, a big arena in New York, that Frank Sinatra was in for ABC. And they, I said, could I work on that? And they said, yes. So I got assigned as a production assistant on that, my first network credit. You can go to YouTube and watch it. Mm. My name is on there. There's proof that I actually worked on it. But Frank Sinatra gave me a gold cigarette lighter as a present. Oh, wow. Talk about an old time, which I still have. I was going to ask. Anyway, I did that concert, which happened to have been produced by the head of ABC Sports, of all things. And then he said, how about coming to ABC Sports? So I spent 13 years working on sports, six Olympic games, and you name the program in sports. I worked on it. And um, and then I got promoted to run ABC Entertainment in California, which was primetime programming. And that led me to ultimately managing uh, creative creative processes and creative businesses for ABC and then Disney, which bought ABC in 1995. And ultimately, I became president and then CEO of Disney. Sort that's, of a, that's a good good set of highlights. A, yes, there are a variety of things that happen in between. But Yeah, yeah, but a good whirlwind. I guess, are there certain key moments or projects besides the Frank Sinatra concert that sort of helped define your ideas about the industry, things you either thought to build on or change? 
Well, yes, there are many. I worked I worked for people at ABC Sports that were phenomenal storytellers, and they actually believed that in every sporting event there was a great story, either the stories that unfolded rather unpredictably on the field. Um, let's hope there's a great story here tomorrow, by the way, for the Longhorns, um, or stories that uh, involve specific athletes, their background, what motivated them, how they overcame adversity, injury, whatever, how they rose to the occasion, how they became heroes. And so I, through that period of time, which might not be obvious, I became much more appreciative of the value of great storytelling and and how um, there were never enough great stories. You know, you'd never have too many, in fact. Um, and interestingly enough, that um, awareness of and appreciation for great storytelling served me incredibly well for the rest of my career, certainly running ABC primetime entertainment. But then, of course, when I became head of Disney and we went and we were in the business of basically we were the biggest in the business at the time in terms of storytelling, whether you were telling a story in a theme park attraction or a parade, whether you're telling a story in a movie or a television series, um, it was just uh, the core, really, of what Walt Disney created at the company, basically in the twenties, and what we what Disney became through my era and what it is today. So that would be appreciation for the great story. I also, over time, worked for some great risk takers, some people who were willing to defy conventional wisdom, to believe in their own instinct, to be not overly reliant on research, and basically go with their gut and take big chances. Um, I think I probably should come up with examples, but uh, <laughs> I put a crazy program on ABC called Twin Peaks way back, which people thought I was out of my mind. It was I was maybe ahead of my time, ahead of the times, but I don't think I was out of my mind. Um, we took great risks throughout the years um, making movies and making a. If I were to tell you, if someone were to come into your office and say, "I'd like to do a, a, a an animated movie." Uh, about the day of the dead and it's going to have an all Mexican cast and the music is going to be Mexican themed. Um, it's going to be set in Mexico. You probably say, well, really we're going to make a funny movie about the day of the dead. And that became Coco as a, for instance, or black Panther. I could probably go on and on, but taking risks, particularly when it came to storytelling, really important. Other lessons along the way. I mean, there've been many, um, obviously a commitment to excellence. I call it the relentless pursuit of perfection. There's no such thing as something being too good. There's a, you know, there's a lot to be said about people who have accepted mediocrity, whether they're leaders or whether they're people who work for leaders, creating a culture where mediocrity is not to be tolerated and demand for excellence, even un under the most humane circumstances, not killing people for it, um, is really critical. <laughs> and it sets companies apart, certainly storytellers apart. I'm, oh, no, thank you. No, I'm, I could go on, but don't have to. No, no, I, it, this is all great. I'm kind of curious, related to your career trajectory, um, I know you were with one company for the span of your career, and I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to, do you feel like that kind of path of moving through one company, is that a route that people even take anymore? What's changed in terms of the ways people progress in their careers? Well, I think in general, the world is much more mobile than it used to be. People just move around a lot more. They, they move homes, they travel a lot more, COVID aside, um, they change jobs, they change companies. 
much more often. I, I don't really even remember when I started out whether I thought about working for a company as long as I ended up working for them. I don't think I did. You went, tried to do a job well. You hoped that in doing a job well, that would result in more opportunity and more jobs. I'm extremely fortunate looking back that I worked for a company that continued and an industry, which is important, yeah. that continued to expand and expand and expand and expand in part because of what technology was enabling, in part because what the world culturally and economically was, was enabling. And so I did not have to leave the company I worked for to find opportunity. Yeah. At the same time, we were bought. Um, I worked at ABC. We were bought by a company called Capital Cities. Capital Cities ABC was bought by a company called Disney. And so we kept getting bought by these other companies. And with that came more opportunity. So I guess to answer your question, I'm, I think I'm very, even, I'm very unique <laughs> uh, in, in many ways because I didn't have to leave to do more. And whether it was being better compensated or being challenged more or having the ability to show people what I, what I was capable of. Uh, in today's world, I don't sense that maybe this audience is the audience to ask that question of. I don't think people even think about staying that long. But if someone were to say, well, you're going to stay at this place for 25 years, you'd probably tell them they're crazy. That would be boring. That would be, it would never amount to enough opportunity. And I, I just think whether it's more transient or the, whether the world is just more f in flux, in part because of the forces of disruption and change, it's unheard of. I, I know um, at Disney, we had what we called service awards every year where you give people awards for five-year increments, people who were there for 10 years, 15 years, 20. And there were always people who we rewarded for being there for 50 there were some that even longer, they were typically employees of theme parks. And you'd talk to someone who, I don't know, worked at a restaurant on Main Street at Disneyland, you know, for 55 years, something like that. But beyond those, the, you know, when I'd get up and took my, got my 45-year trophy, by the way, you get trophies every five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there weren't many that were standing with me, which is wow. kind of telling, it's kind of lonely. Oh, <laughs> well, having seen so much change from one company, albeit one that was sort of changing from the inside out, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to the changes. I know some of my students heard or read you were speaking to the, at the code conference mm -hmm. a couple of days ago and discussing how linear TV broadcasting cable are, I think, in for a world of hurt was the well, I think I would, well, no, no, no. I think I said is moving closer and closer to the edge of a great precipice, and very quickly, soon. I didn't say when it will they will be pushed off. Right. This is a time. I don't know where you're headed, but what I ended up, I think, describing was a. This is an age of more uncertainty and more anxiety in the media and entertainment business than I have ever seen, and it is rampant. It is throughout. It affects advertisers. It affects movie theater owners. It affects television stations, it affects executives, agents, investors, even streamers, even the, the new kids on the block are going through an age of transformation and feeling the anxiety. And I think that's a result of more rapid change, transformation, exacerbated, hastened by the uh, pandemic in right. some cases, but change is happening so fast that it's dizzying people. It's, and it's really 
basically shaking them up, shaking them up to their core. Well, and I'm kind of curious in terms of changes to linear TV. Um, I mean, what do you think will be broadcast in cable? I know crystal ball, but like, where do you think the major changes, what if what's already happened that's substantive from mm -hmm. your perspective and where is the change going? Sure. First of all, I don't think people really want to watch channels anymore and they don't want to watch linear television news put aside, turn to a news channel, a destination for news that represents at least news as you'd like to hear it. That's a whole other story. Um, sports to some extent, but even there, people are seeking out specific sports, not just turning on ESPN to find out what's on. They want to watch tennis. They want to watch football. So one, people don't want to watch TV in a linear fashion. Two, then that ties to channels. The whole notion of getting a bundle of multiple channels, many of which you never watch, there's nothing of interest. Sometimes you can't even find them. You don't know what's on. That to me is yesterday's news. So the whole business of, of, of um, cable and satellite delivered multi-channel television is, I believe, going away. And right now, I think it's being kept alive by part complacency. People have subscriptions and they just don't, and you know, they renew automatically and it keeps going on, but also generationally. So when the baby boom generation, which is my generation, starts, I'll call it aging off this planet, better word than dying, I guess. Um, it will be replaced by generations that care less and less. And, some, and, and at some point, your generation, students' generation, will really be the dominant generation. And you're not going to subscribe to cable or satellite. It just won't happen. Um, the thing that's also interesting there, and it affects what we're seeing today in terms of interest in streaming, is that if you look over the history of media, technology, as it advances, always basically distributes more authority to the consumer. You could go all the way back, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but there was a time when I was growing up that to change a channel on a TV, you had to get up and turn a dial on the television. Suddenly, you got a remote control device. That remote control device, powered by technology, enabled you to change the channel by sitting on your couch like that. So you could be much more selective, much less tolerant of watching something that you didn't like because you didn't have to get up anymore. I know that sounds ridiculous, but there's friction, there's energy that it takes to have to get up. If you just use that analogy and you apply it all the way through to poor interface with cable and satellite and the more user-friendly nature of app-based television, the ability to search, the ability to find programs that are more relevant to you, the ability for a, a, a service like Netflix to use data to push program to you that's more relevant, that's really giving the user more authority than the distributor or even the creator. And so as that has happened, you, are, the, you the consumer, are exercising that authority and you are changing the business in the process. I don't want to watch channels anymore. I don't want to subscribe to them. I don't want to pay for them. I want just programs. I don't want to watch a program every week, wait every week. I want to watch all episodes in one weekend, in one sitting. I want to be able to pause and change another device. I want to be able to watch it on a smartphone, not on a fixed television in my room, in my living room. All of those things, that shift. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing, I think, this era of mass anxiety, because I think we've reached a inflection point or a tipping point where the consumer is speaking louder and louder than ever before. 
and it's freaking people out who have had real control. Right. Movie theater going, a great example. <laughs> I don't want to watch a movie in a movie theater. Yes, it's a nice place, but my feet stick to the floor because some guy spilled Coke who was sitting in the same seat of the movie before, or I have to find parking or you name it. And frankly, the experience isn't that great. I don't want to watch 16 trailers and <laughs> 20 commercials and let me watch it in my home. And that's authority. That's an authority shift. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great answer. Um, I'm curious. So you were at Disney, obviously, when from 1995-96. How did the company change in terms of Disney before you became CEO? What did you see? And then what did you see as key goals that you wanted to implement when you became CEO? There were many. Disney is a company that was founded by Walt Disney in 1923. So it's celebrating its 100th year next year. By the way, a very interesting thing about that, which is relevant to some of the things we've talked about, what I also will talk about, is if you were to look at all the great brands in the world in 1923, when Walt created the company, and you were to look today, there was only one brand that existed in the world in 1923 that's still considered a top brand today. That's Coca-Cola, not one other. Interestingly enough, mm -hmm. Disney's the only one. You could look in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 80s, you name it. You will find that the great brands of the world during those decades don't exist anymore. Great car manufacturers, uh, airlines, the technology companies in my day were Xerox, IBM. They were great technology companies. There was no Google or Apple or whatever. Um, what's, I think, relevant about that is how do you take a company or a brand created that long ago and keep it relevant over that period of time. So the answer on change that I've seen is one, you have to be open-minded about adapting new technology and using it to basically keep your brand relevant and to maintain a relationship with the consumer that respects the shift in authority that I talked about that they have. It's not just quality storytelling, it's creating the flexibility that is that they demand, things like that. Interestingly enough, back in um, you know, 2006, uh, we made a decision at Disney. I still say we. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to lose. <laughs> You're <that>. allowed. <laughs> um, to take television programs that were on ABC and put them on iTunes. And what was interesting, and then we did it with movies. What was interesting to me about that is that our brand relevance with younger people shot sky high because we were now presenting, we were not changing our storytelling. We weren't changing the images that much, but we were presenting them in more relevant, more modern ways and giving them to consumers in ways that made it more consumable or more user-friendly. That little change. So Disney actually, before I took over, viewed technology as a threat, not as, a, not as an opportunity. I changed that basically by creating a relationship with Steve Jobs, buying Pixar, making him our largest, he became our largest shareholder and a board member. And essentially saying we're embracing technology, not just to power our business, but to keep our brand relevant. That was a primary one. Another that was, so was embracing technology. Mm -hmm. Another was, I actually thought that in a world that would see much more being created, today it's even exploded a lot more. There are, I don't know, six, 700 TV series being made in the United States today, just in the United States. Back in 2005, that number was probably 100. May, May it was 50 at some point when I had the job of running 
primetime television for ABC. So if you see a world that is where there's a, an explosion of things that are stories that are being told, things that are being made, I believe brands would matter more. They'd stand taller. They'd be a, a beacon of trust and essentially um, uh, telegraph certain values to consumers that when they were trying to decide what to watch, they gravitate to brands. So we put a lot of money into not just Disney branded programming, but Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, to name a few. Right. Um, so that was another change. The third change was global. And that is that Disney was a global brand, but it only penetrated certain markets superficially, notably China and India. We just didn't value those places because they were so it was so difficult to do business there whether it was regulatory in India or a variety of infrastructure issues in India, a regulatory in China or a variety of uh, structural issues in, um, in India, I thought that there were opportunities there that we should go after. And that was a big change. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. And, and sort of related to that. Um, I know that a lot of today's leaders of companies have law degrees or MBA. And I'm curious, you know, your career proves you don't need one uh, to run a company. And in some ways, I'm curious how making strategic decisions um, worked for you at the boardroom level. And did you see it as intuition and experience that was driving you as you moved up the ladder? Was it uh, surrounding yourself with the right people, leaning on the MBAs and JDs? Yes, it is that. I, you know, I never <laughs> felt I had to have a law degree to run Disney. Yeah. I had to have great lawyers that appreciated business. Yeah. That was, the, and actually there was a general counsel at Disney for all the years that I was CEO that was fantastic at law, both how he was schooled and, and how he applied his schooling, but he had a deep appreciation of business and he was a real partner. The same would be true for people who had MBAs. You know, there were a lot of people, we had to do, obviously you're running a business with you know, you know, at some point, Disney's value was $300 billion in market cap. It's a pretty serious business. You've got to have business people that are helping you manage that. However, um, I thought one of the things that was important to me as I grew was having an appreciation with being generally a creative executive, but having an appreciation for the business side, not dis dismissing it, sometimes discounting it a little bit, <laughs> uh, but not fully dismissing it. And I also, I learned you don't have a job like I did for as long as I did without learning a fair amount about, so I have an MBA, but I got it not going to school. Right. My classroom was, was the world of running Disney. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question. I think there's value to those degrees. Yeah. And there are people who have those degrees that bring great value to companies and they shouldn't be dismissed completely, but they're part of a, an equation, so to speak, or a recipe that results in um, company success. Well, it seems like your aptitude and appreciation for creative talent is a distinguishing factor. And I'm just curious in terms of what you did as, you know, what would a week be like? And you probably can't even say what a week would be like in late, in, let's say late in your tenure. And how much of that involved engaging with the creative side of things? So I was lucky in that I grew up through the company, mostly managing creative pursuits, some creativity, um, which is um, unusual for the CEOs of the big media companies. So I came to it with, I guess, part of my DNA was creativity, which I think served me incredibly well. 
Um, how that would I'm go back to, well, maybe I should start with what was a day like or a week like? Yeah, I know. Multi-part question. Well, first of all, every <laughs> single transaction at Disney begins with some great story or creativity, whether it's a theme park attraction or whether it's a movie, a television show, even if you look at consumer products where we made, you know, backpacks and every sure everybody at some point had a Disney related backpack or whatever. Maybe some of you still do. I don't know. Um, it would start with somebody's story. You buy a Black Panther backpack. Well, that starts with the people who created Black Panther, for instance. And so I always valued creativity over everything else at Disney. All days began and ended with that. And in fact, even though I was managing a big corporation and had to deal with a lot of business issues, I tried to fit into every, uh, every day something that had to do with creativity. Um, whether I was going to Disney Imagineering and looking at a design for a new Star Wars land at a theme park, whether I was watching a rough cut, an early rough cut of one of our big movies, whether I was meeting with television executives plotting out, you know, a, a, a lot of new uh, series, even to the point where, and I talked about this in an earlier class, talking about what Mickey Mouse should be in 2020. The character was created in 1928. Um, and how do you keep a character like that relevant today? I always used to joke because I come home from work. My son's one of whom is here is a sophomore at Moody, by the way. Um, what do you, you know, we always talk about our, the boys would have to tell us what their days were like. What do you do today? By the way, if you're a boy, usually it's nothing. Um, <laughs> sorry, Will. Um, and my wife would tell my wife who also works. We talk about her day and I talk about mine. It's well, today I spent an hour talking about Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I had this crazy job. Or I go to Disney Imagineering where they design all the theme park attractions. And oftentimes we create real life mock-ups of our theme park attractions in cavernous airplane hangars and parking lots. And I'd ride rides. Um, instead of test dummies, they used to put the CEO in. <laughs> Actually, there was one ride I rode Early on, it was called Test Track at um, now at Disney World, General Motors Test Track. And I wrote it, and then they determined that it was completely unsafe. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and it didn't end up in the theme park. It took us like five years to work out the safety issues there, but I wrote it. There was one time I rode a ride, and the rest of the seats were filled with sandbags. <laughs> it kind of gives you a sense. Wait a minute. Um, so I had this charmed life of you know, these incredibly interesting, stimulating subjects that came my way. So managing these brands and, and talking about the future and trying to figure out how technology would play a role and, and traveling the world. I was a big believer that if you don't go, you can't grow. So you can't just say, well, we're going to, I don't know, we're going to succeed in India without actually going, eating the food, meeting the people, not just government people, but actually walking streets. I'd always go to uh, I used to love to go to um, big box retailers. Actually, the funny one, the, the first, I went to the first Walmart that opened up in China just to see, you know, how are people shopping? Where could we, we be on the shelves? And I went into one area that I thought was a pet, air, pet area, and it turned out it was food. So it was snakes and frogs and live shrimp and et cetera and so on. And there was another area I heard loud cheering it was a track and field event on, it was a television area where they were selling televisions, but a lot of people in that area, this goes back to mid nineties, I think, didn't have large flat screen TVs in their homes. 
at Walmart, you could see like 50 of them. So everybody would go to Walmart just to watch television. Wow. But it was, a, I, I really believed in learning about the world and that was part of it. And now I can't, I've got to remember even what your question Roles and responsibilities. Uh, How they change? Well, I, you have to manage a, a company for these constituents. One, your shareholders, Wall Street and investors. Two, you always have to have the customer in mind. Three, your employees. And actually for me, I always wanted, I wanted Disney to be the most admired company in the world. And that was a goal of mine. And what I talked about was you have to be admired by those three groups. But unless you're admired by your employees, you'll never be admired by the other two. You want everybody that comes to work every day to be, and I know this sounds maybe, I don't know what, chauvinistic or whatever, but you want everybody to be proud of where they are. I'm happy to walk into this building. I respect my colleagues. I respect the people I work for. I respect the brand. I love the business I'm in. I think the company is going to give me opportunities. It starts at home in a way in your company. And then if you have an employee base that respects where they work so much, you probably will get product. Your output will be such that your customers and your ultimately your investors will be happy. Now that that's helpful. And you dealt with um, sort of the many, many things you were juggling on a given week. Were there particular divisions that you were consistently meeting with or working with? closely or roles of, just to give the students um, a sense of like how the company different. Yeah. I split my time pretty, pretty evenly among the television group, the movie studio group and the theme park group. Um, and it changed from time to time based on activity. So um, we were developing, designing, ultimately building a Disneyland for Shanghai, which was a $6 billion project that took 18 years from start to finish to actually get done. Um, in the last six months leading up to opening, I was there 11 times. So if I'm going there, I can't spend as much time on the other businesses. Right, right. That was unusual, but for the most part, it was split up pretty evenly. Those were big needle movers for the company. Um, you did make a series of not just one, but great films it has a huge impact on the rest of the company and on the business multiple TV shows, obviously, theme parks. Um, I would say I, if I were to look back and try to figure out how I allocated my time, creativity probably took 60% of my time. Um, managing those businesses, it was no, all about creativity, probably about 70%. And then you have to deal with corporate issues, Wall Street, the press, board of directors, um, HR, a lot of pe people management, as anyone knows who runs a large organization, takes a huge amount of time. And by the way, should. Mm -hmm. um, it can drive you crazy at times, but it, it, it's, a, it's a necessary you know, part of leadership is managing people. Thanks. You've talked a lot about some of the major deals you made with Pixar, Marvel, and so on. And I'm biased because I've written about Marvel and comic books, but I'm curious just to focus in on one. Um, how do you see Marvel's trajectory having shifted after it? I mean, obviously Disney transformed the company, but did it proceed the way you expected it to under your tenure? Did it develop differently um, than what was anticipated when you acquired it in 2009? Well, it exceeded our expectations. Uh, when we looked at Marvel, we had bought Pixar and 
at that point, I had already declared that brands would matter. And we declared that Marvel, if managed well, could become an important entertainment brand. At that point, it had only released one film, Iron Man 1. And so it really, they hadn't really proven that they could become a brand, but that was a very successful movie. And when we studied it, we discovered that there were 7,000 characters that had been created. And that's a lot of stories that you can tell, as you know, having studied the business. So the initial vision was, let's take a look at characters, a very small subset of those, and determine which ones would make for good story and a good movie. We work with a great team at Marvel. Um, and interestingly enough, they came in, and I will never forget it, and stood at a whiteboard in my conference room and plotted out ultimately what became of, they call it the MCU, and ultimately what became of Avengers. So basically, is we're going to make Iron Man 2 and maybe Iron Man 3. We're going to lay in a Captain America movie. Maybe we'll do a sequel to that. Then we're going to do Thor. Maybe we'll get a sequel to that. And then we're going to put them all together in one movie called The Avengers. Wow, this sounds pretty interesting. But <laughs> let's get good Captain America and Thor movies out there. So the plan was to essentially start small, basically target a few characters, get them all kind of more into a level that was you know, more popular, more known, then put them together and tell a much grand, more grand story and then see what else is out there. And that became Guardians of the Galaxy and a variety of things. So I think that part of it unfolded basically the way we expected, except the movies they made were much more successful than we ever imagined. So we bought Marvel for $4 billion. And uh, we used to evaluate it every year to see whether we were right or wrong. <laughs> it did it deliver? At one point, it was worth $25 billion, just based on the success of their movies. Then with the advent of streaming and more shelf space came the opportunity to create television series, not just for ABC, where they had made one, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and not just for, for basically kids' cartoons, but to really go at it and go deep into characters and tell new stories. And so they've done a lot of that with um, Loki and uh, Winter, uh, Winter Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Remember all these things. I know. <laughs> I'm losing my uh, I'm I'm losing my my sharpness for Marvel characters. Um, <laughs> she Hulk and I I got most of it in my head. So it's expanded a lot more, and that's interesting because one of the things that is most dramatic about what you're seeing today in media and entertainment is not just the shift in authority to the consumer, but the massive amount of shelf space that's available thanks to technology has created a canvas for creators to paint on that's more gigantic than even infinite than anyone imagined. Shelf space in my day was television channels and movie theaters. That was it. If you're a creator, of, that's it. That's pretty limited. It seemed vast then. Now, I mean, if Netflix wants to make 5,000 shows, they could do that. There's nothing, there's money, obviously, but there's no limitation in terms of size. And the purview of the, the purview of the storyteller has exploded. So that's probably one of the biggest shifts that I've seen. And Marvel has taken advantage of that. So has Lucasfilm with new series, Pixar with new series, Disney. Yeah, I think you made some good calls there. <laughs> um, yes, I think I got lucky too. But I think the, the notion of, of, of um, buying IP, intellectual property that become brands was the right one, but you still have to execute. Right. And there, I, I think 
the credit really goes to the talented people that not only created those things, but managed that creativity. And they turned out to be so incredibly successful and ultimately validated the acquisition. But had they not created great things, the acquisitions would have been worthless. Right, right. Well, as opposed to an acquisition, and this is sort of, I have a couple more questions and then open it up for uh, the students. Um, in contrast to acquisitions, you built your own streaming service, right? And so to pivot to the discussion of streamers, I'm curious um, how, again, being ahead of technology, the sort of technological curve, like how that process came about of moving Disney Plus to launch and also um, your sort of view on streaming right now, because I know that it's entered a bit of a bumpy time mm -hmm. industry-wide. So if you're running a, a, a company, maybe any company, but a company in the media space, you have you must have an eye toward the future and you must be well aware of trends that are occurring, whether it's technological advance or consumer behavioral change or economics or even global politics that may affect your business either positively or negatively. What we were seeing with technology helped immeasurably by companies like Apple was that more mobility, obviously more shelf space, more selectivity programs versus channels, more uh, the demand for more user friendliness, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that essentially meant that we had to figure out how our programs and movies would ultimately be present in these new forms of distribution, but more importantly, consumption. I mentioned iTunes earlier, that clearly was one. Along comes Netflix, which converts itself from a company that is essentially mailing DVDs, physical DVDs to people's homes, and suddenly making available same movies digitally. And they wanted to license our movies for their platform. And they agreed to pay us twice what anyone had been paying us. We used to license to HBO and Showtime twice what we paid, and we said yes. And as I joked a few times, it was like, we I didn't realize it, but we were selling them basically nuclear weapons technology to ultimately use against us. And they did, <laughs> and they did. So they built this great platform that was anchored by consumers that wanted to watch Disney movies. They loved musicals, even the old ones, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Little Mermaid. Were, we found out the most popular things on Netflix. And then with that success, which spawned greater consumption and subscriptions, they took the money they made from that and they created their own programming competing with Disney and got bigger and bigger and bigger. I finally said, wait a minute. And their stock shot up. So at one point they were worth more than Disney with no profitability. That really got me mad. <laughs> um, running a company that's making $5 billion, they're losing money. They're worth $300 billion. We're worth $150 billion. Something's wrong. So I immediately created a, a, basically a, internally in Disney a think tank of sorts to try to design a, a streaming platform for us. And it, it was complicated because we needed a technology solution. You can't just say we're going to stream. You have to have the technology. It actually led to a very interesting um, pursuit, which is very relevant today. And that is that we decided to buy Twitter. We viewed Twitter as a platform that would be phenomenal distributing streaming product to not only the home in the United States, but globally. We could put news, sports, entertainment, you name it, and really get to know our consumer better and just control our own destiny. And actually had a deal that we could have closed 
with Twitter, but I got cold feet when I realized that I would end up having to manage a complexity and situations that weren't even close to what I've ever, ever managed before. And they become huge distractions, let alone the fact that a lot of Twitter accounts just weren't real. That was a whole other issue. So I got, <laughs> I got scared and backed away, but we found a technology platform. We ended up telling Netflix, we're taking our product back. We had a right to do that, keeping it all ourselves. We created a production arm to create programming just for Disney plus. And this is actually wild, but our estimate, we launched it in November of 19. And we estimated that by November of 20, we'd have four to 5 million subscribers. We signed up 10 million subscribers in the first 24 hours. So in 20, in a day, we had more subscribers than we thought, more than double that we get in a year. And we were off to the races. And I think as I look at streaming today, what I see is too many streamers. Um, the, what I mean by that is that, first of all, it's costly. I do think that advertising is an answer, that there are a lot of people that will tolerate commercial interruption if they can, if they, as long as their subscription is cheaper. So that's going to happen. But a lot of these streamers will never get to the critical mass necessary to support their mass investment in creativity. There just aren't enough subscribers out there. There isn't enough price elasticity, meaning raising prices, particularly in an inflationary world, and they're going to fall by the wayside. Those that will succeed, obviously Apple and Amazon will succeed because they're in so many other businesses. Disney and Netflix will succeed. Netflix, although they're going through a tough time, are here to stay. And Disney, because it's already surpassed Netflix in total global subs and has all that intellectual property. It's another thing. Netflix didn't have a library except for what we rented to them. Yeah. Um, so I'm a bit, I'm bullish on Netflix. I'm bullish on Disney. I don't work there anymore either. So <laughs> uh, I'd still care, but I don't work there. And I'm not sure about any of the others. Yeah. And it seems like we're in for some serious consolidation coming up next years probably yeah and part of it will the economy will demand that yeah. um, it just gets expensive but consumers will also save money as they wean themselves of cable and satellite subscriptions and you know have a little bit more money to spend on streamers but how much i don't think and not a, there isn't enough out there to sustain all the streaming platforms that exist Thanks. So my final is an advice question and that's just for students here who are thinking about working on the business, let's fix the business side. I'll let someone else ask a question about the creative side if they want to. Um, what advice would you have for them about things that they might do now or as they're preparing to graduate to help prepare for such a career? Well, I think it starts with the fact that you're in a school that is going to at least give you a good foundation in terms of knowledge, insight into the business, which is vast and there are so many different facets to it. But I went to a small school that doesn't compare in size to Moody or in quality, but I got a good education at the time in the business. And while I was in school, I applied myself really well to absorb as much as I could, not just in the classroom, but I participated working for the college radio station, the television station. I worked on covering football games. I did whatever I possibly could to gain practical learning. So that when I left, I spoke the language and I had a little bit more appreciation. And I was pretty, I was a pretty good interviewer, interviewee. Yeah. I just knew what I, I knew more. So that's important. Nothing ever beats curiosity, which is beyond the confines of these 40 acres is really learning 
and absorbing as much as you possibly can about the business. It's not just watching, it's reading things about it. It's getting, it's gaining insights so you can appreciate more, not just appreciate where the business might be, but where you might play, where you might work in it. And, and at some point, you don't have to declare where you want to end up or declare what you want to do forever. But I think having some specific interest in an area of the business ultimately is valuable because focus is always important. Although, you know, it doesn't mean you turn down a job it just because it doesn't quite fit into what your definition of what you want to do is, as I discovered, get in yeah. and then go from, and then prove yourself and go from there. It worked for me. Maybe I'm, I hope that I'm not an anomaly. I am in terms of how long I was around, <laughs> but I don't think, I, I don't think people should um, be skeptical or pessimistic about uh, their ability to prove their worth uh, once they actually end up in an organization. That's really helpful. And so while I think, do we have people with microphones that are ready to, while they're getting up and ready and people can raise their hands, I'm going to ask the question I ask all my guests as a last question. And that is, what are you watching these days? Um, you know, I'm in such an interesting place in my life because I spent so long watching things as homework. Um, and I suddenly don't have any homework anymore. I can watch anything. <laughs> I don't have to feel, feel guilty about watching a Netflix show. I just finished The Bear on Netflix, on uh, Hulu. I'm about to watch The Patient, which I hear is very good. I have to watch the new edition of Chef's Table on Netflix. I've Oh, dear. I'm a, I was a Game of Thrones fan. I've actually watched the prequel. It's not as bad as some of the reviewers said it was. I'm enjoying that. Um, I'm watching some Disney stuff here and there. <laughs> I don't remember what else. I have, a, I have a list of things always. There are always people say, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? You start feeling guilty. You can't see everything. I don't know if anybody has any suggestions. <laughs> this um, is how I get my viewing advice. Is <laughs> the bear is pretty interesting. Yeah. Different storytelling, very different form of storytelling, kind of bold. You know, I've seen Dope Sick and I saw Dropout and... Um, I don't know. Hulu has some really great. Yeah, Hulu's great. Yeah. I watched, I like, my my son is a huge Curb Your Enthusiasm fan. So I didn't really watch that when it was initially on. So that always makes me happy. Go back and watch one of those. Definitely. I still watch a lot of sports and I'm still a news hound. I, believe it or not, uh, David Muir, who's the anchor for ABC Evening News, went to Ithaca College where I went. So I mentored him since he started ABC, he became what I wanted to be. Uh, and I still, I'm really, really abnormal in this regard. I still will watch the evening news. Just a great half hour of my day where I actually learned something. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Okay. Do we have some questions? Uh, let's go ahead and start over here. Sorry for my back or my side, by the way. I realized I didn't think I was going to be first. That's crazy. <laughs> Pressure is on. It is. Uh, my name is Xavier. Uh, believe it or not, I've been a shareholder of Disney since I was in elementary school. So, <laughs> well, I hope that that served you well, right? Yes, it has. Oh, when so it's funny <laughs> because when I was a kid, I would like hear news of Disney's like buying Marvel or Star Wars or whatever. It felt like I was in, like a toy box or something. I was like, I'm making so much money. Uh, I so was the guy. You were. Okay. Thank you for making those decisions. <laughs> um, I guess I just want to know, like. Because when I was hearing about like the Fox acquisition and stuff like that, I was like, oh, there's so much stuff that they could make. But I'm interested to see 
in terms of acquiring new IP and stuff like that, like what was going on in your head in terms of pros and cons of why should we do this? Why should we not do this? A lot. The Fox acquisition was a $71 billion acquisition. Uh, that's a big bet. Uh, we netted it down to in the 40s because we sold off an interest they had in Sky TV in Europe, and we sold their re regional sports networks. And so the net effect of having sold those was it was a $46 billion acquisition. At the time, which was, I think I started talking to Rupert Murdoch about it in uh, late 17, I already had envisioned creating a streaming platform for Disney. And so everything we analyzed in terms of value at Fox was through the lens of streaming. First thing it did is it gave us control of Hulu. We own 30% of Hulu. We immediately became the controlling shareholder. So we ran Hulu. We also ended up with a couple of sub-brands that weren't anything like Marvel or Pixar, but I thought had some value. National Geographic was one. FX was another. But then we had a treasure trove of IP starting with The Simpsons, which was plus 30 seasons. So if you looked at Disney Plus on launch day, there were 30 seasons of The Simpsons on there. Avatar, James Cameron is coming out with Avatar 2 this um, Christmas season. I've, I can tell you I've seen it. I got to look at it right before I left Disney. Um, and it's phenomenal. So there was just a lot of creativity. We talked about Hulu. Those shows, Dopesick, The Dropout, Bear, patient, all of them were produced by Fox television entities that are fueling the streaming platform that ultimately will be a global streaming platform for Disney. So they, what, what, what went through my head is actually the first thing I did, I sat with Rupert Murdoch. We talked about possibly buying those assets. I immediately got on the phone with my team and I said, I asked my, one, the business people and two, <laughs> the legal team, the legal team. I said, tell me what the regulatory problems we will face, um, antitrust issues, too much concentration of ownership, not just in the U.S., you have to look globally, EU in particular. I turned, I said, I want an analysis of that. Will the regulatory authorities stand in our way? And I talked to the business people and I said, give me a list of everything they own and let's put it on a piece of paper next to all of Disney's assets and see what we can make of it. That is that simple. Now, it wasn't didn't feel that simple at the time <laughs> and that's what we did and then it turns out there was competition comcast came in and topped our offer and we had to get rid of them and <laughs> did that successfully there are people by the way who are critical of what we paid for fox um i'll defend it to until um, i'm my dying day they just think we overspent but they have no idea that it gave us the critical mass to be to be to surpass Netflix and global subscribers in a world that is migrating to um, streaming television. Great question. Let's go over here. Um, and I'm going to make you walk. <laughs> hey, Mr. Iger, I'm Scott. Thank you so much for coming. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the a story about the Spider-Man Sony deal and how that kind of transpired and how it almost fell apart and how it was resolved. Are you talking about for sequels? Yeah, for the MCU. Basically, when we bought uh, Marvel, uh, Marvel, before it was controlled by Disney, didn't have the resources to make their own movies except for one, Iron Man. So they licensed to other studios movie rights, and they licensed to 
I guess it was Columbia Pictures and then Sony, rights to make Spider-Man in perpetuity. We had the right to put Spider-Man in a movie as a character, thus in Avengers. Actually, Captain America Winter Soldier, I think, might have been the first time we had Spider-Man in. Um, but we didn't have those rights. At some, But what we did own was we owned consumer products rights to Spider-Man. So if you look globally at what kids like to wear and buy, Spider-Man's like right up there as a global pop, pop for global popularity. And it generated a lot of profitability for Disney. They were, te- they were making such bad Spider-Man movies that it was driving our consumer products straight down. You want every kid, every kid in America to want a Spider-Man costume for Halloween. Well, if it's a bad movie, they don't want Spider-Man. So we went to Sony and we said, we'll take over production of your movies. We'll, buy, we'll let us make them. We'll make them better. That was a little arrogant of us. But <laughs> what the heck? We'll buy you out of your, we'll basically make it, make it affordable. We basically took the risk out. If we make a bad movie, it was all on us. But they agreed to it. But I think it was only for, might have been for one movie or two. I don't remember. We're the ones who cast Tom Holland as Spider-Man and brought Zendaya in. and. I think that made a huge difference. When the deal ran out, Sony decided oh, we could make them just as good as Disney. We're taking them back. And we, there was an impasse because we had some blocking rights. I don't even remember all the details. But Tom Holland called me one day from a pub in London drunk. <laughs> well, he admits this is his story. He had one too many pints. And he said, you, you got to help me. You got to save this. So. I went in and negotiated a deal with Sony to save it and enable Disney to make more Spider-Man movies. That's the whole, that's the story. Thank you. I remember the phone call. <laughs> he went on, by the way, he went on, I don't know, Jimmy Fallon or whatever. He told the story of having too many beers, having to talk to me on the phone. Okay. Um, let's go towards the back there. Thank you, Mr. Iger. My name is Abraham. Uh, I just have a question about like the conglomerates that are coming up right now in the entertainment industry, like Warner Brothers, Discovery, uh, Comcast, Disney, obviously. Like, what are the benefits or what are the consequences of having all of these media companies merging? What are the reasons of it? And is this ultimately, in your opinion, a good thing or a bad thing for the industry? Well, that is such a good question. Um, the benefits are that in order to operate at scale today, in order to invest all of this money and all this creativity, it takes huge amount of resources. And with that comes everything from your ability to you know, borrow money at relatively low rates, your ability to distribute globally and market globally and monetize, your ability to collect data and manage it across businesses. So there is value, but companies, um, can get unwieldy in terms of your ability to manage them. Um, I, I, I know there are, a lot of, there are a lot of skeptics out there that believe that conglomerates can destroy creativity. In today's world, there are so many opportunities for someone who's creative to tell a story and get that story made that I no longer believe that's the case. The control of these conglomerates over the creative world is not strong enough to prevent create great creativity. Um, I think the biggest issue is that these companies, if they've merged, have collected businesses that are no longer as relevant or as successful in today's world. Discovery and Time Warner 
is a great example of that. They have $55 billion in debt. They owe $55 billion. And in order to basically manage that, their cable and satellite businesses have to be successful for a long time to drive profits because streaming isn't going to be successful for a while. And that's a huge problem for them. And ultimately will result in their inability to spend money on creativity. So it's, I know in Disney's case, um, maybe I should speak more specifically at that. Um, we, one of the things that, that is, uh, it was of real value is there were so many directions you could go within Disney creatively that if you were a creator, you wanted to work there because you could work on a movie, you could work on a TV series, you could get involved in the design of a theme park attraction. It was just, and we had deep pockets in terms of resources to basically enable you to create whatever you wanted to create. So that it, that had great value. If we'd been smaller, we wouldn't have been able to be as attractive to the creative community as we, as we needed to be. Let's see, uh, go to the back there, trying to hit all areas of the class. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Christian and um, I'm, I feel like with the Disney parks and resorts division, I feel like there's a friction right now between developing new technology and retaining um, attractions that people throughout many generations have become kind of attached to. And so I'm curious to hear more about um, how you and your team like approached either redesigning or reinventing an attraction and kind of weighing the fan response and how important the kind of dedicated and kind of um, at times, uh, what's the word? Like overzealous yeah, response very... to attractions were like, how complicated was that for you? So for those of you who might not be aware of maybe what caused you to ask this question, maybe not, but there's a lot of controversy going on at Disneyland. Disneyland was opened by Walt Disney in 1955, way after Walt left and died. An attraction was created called Splash Mountain. Anybody ever ride Splash Mountain at Disneyland and get really wet? <laughs> Usually was not very comfortable. Um, <laughs> and it was what was used was music and some characters from a movie called Song of the South, which had been made a long time back, which depicted America just post-Civil War as with slaves who had been slaves, who were kind of, we call them happy slaves. Um, I viewed the film as being ridiculously racist. Uh, there's controversy about that too. So at some point we made a decision that we should completely re-theme uh, Splash Mountain because we just shouldn't be, it shouldn't evoke stories that we weren't very proud of. It was part of our past. And that caused a huge controversy. One, wokeism, there was that. And two, how could you ever change an attraction that was so beloved at Disneyland? I always felt that the world is not staying in place and that we should always have a march toward being more relevant, even in our theme parks, in terms of our storytelling. And even though some people consider it blasphemy to ever change anything, Walt would never have done that. Walt Disney himself was an innovator. He wouldn't have created Disneyland and kept it as is for, I don't know, it's been open for over 50 years. He would have constantly changed it by adding more, taking attractions out. So I was always a believer in, and this is actually interesting, what do you do? with a company that was created so long ago in terms of how you bring its past into its present and its future. And what I always believed is respect the past, 
understand elements of the past that created value in the first place, but don't revere it to the point where you never change. Because if that's the case, you'll be irrelevant. Disney would not be a relevant brand today. You have to change with the times. A couple of examples. Pirates of the Caribbean, an attraction created by Walt Disney in the mid-60s, opened actually right after he died, had a scene in it where a woman was being auctioned off. I wanted that taken out. I ended up getting backlash for that. I just didn't think we should be showing anyone going through that there was something funny about a woman being auctioned off, even in that context. So there was controversy about that. So I guess my feeling is I'm never going to be defensive about it. I think it's the right thing to do, either because of today's standards and doing what really I believe is the right thing, or because in the march toward being relevant, you constantly have to take out things that are no longer popular. One last one. Realize you think I'm, I'm, I have a PhD in theme parks. <laughs> we had an attraction called Country Bear Jamboree. Nobody went to it. You could go on July 4th where there are 100,000 people in Disneyland. There were three people in Country Bear Jamboree. Get rid of it. It's great space. Take it out. Put something, put a Buzz Lightyear attraction in. Something that today's world. And we'd get hell for that. No one, no one went to it. So anyway, that's, I'm a big believer in respecting the past, not revering it, and the constant, basically, march toward not just being relevant, but innovating. That's actually a really great remark to conclude with. Um, in terms of dealing with the past, present, and future, you've covered a lot of terrain today, and I really appreciate you, you. your time and generosity. With thank you students. very much. So thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a co-production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries in the Moody College of Communication at UT Austin. For more information, please visit rtf.utexas.edu mic and follow us on Twitter at rtfmic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Leslie Willard, Pete Johnson, Keith Borner, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kate Cronin. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation.